Hello, I'm Matthew Taylor, Chief Executive of the RSA. Welcome to the Intelligence Squared podcast. You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. Now, I'm delighted to be here with James Bloodworth, journalist and author of Hired, Six Months Undercover in Low-Wage Britain, which I've just finished. I've finished the final chapter, James, on the tube uh, this morning. I timed it absolutely perfectly. Um, so uh, it, it's a book in which you spend time in various uh, places, Rugeley in the West Midlands, Blackpool, South Wales, London, uh, living the life of the kind of new precariat. So we're going to get into all of that and your experiences and your reflections and talk about the future of work. And I can't resist also talking to you about the future of the left, given that you've got a kind of background in political uh, journalism and commentary. But let's start with the obvious place, which is, you know, describe to me the, the moment when the decision you, when you made the decision to write this book and to put yourself through you know some quite exacting circumstances. I suppose... Um, it was back in the end of 2015. Um, I was there was a lot in the news at the time about the economy going from strength to strength. There was we were on the road to recovery after a long recession. Uh, the employments, the number of people in work, it was quite buoyant. If you looked at the looked at the figures of people getting jobs, um, but behind that there was a a picture that was was less rosy. So there was a massive rise in the number of people on zero hours contracts. There was a big rise in in work poverty. So there was a a statistic that came out, I think, around the end of 2015, early 2016, that most most people living in poverty were actually working. Um, but it felt like there wasn't a great deal of of a belly to earth, as it were, journalism looking at that stuff. There was there were there were things where someone would go off for a day somewhere and speak to a few local people, um, um, come back and to London and then report on it. But it felt like some of my journalistic heroes growing up were people like George Orwell, Jack London. I mean, even even more recently, a journalist in America like Barbara Ehrenreich, who'd, who'd done this kind of embedded themselves in the kind of that life. Polly Toynbee did it. Yeah, Polly Toynbee again uh, in 2003, I think that was, had kind of embedded in themselves in that world. And you, you see things that you wouldn't necessarily see from from the outside looking in. So you have one foot in that world and one foot still in the in the kind of journalism world to then come back and write about it. And what did your friends and family say when you told them that you were going to do this? I think for, initially they didn't they didn't really believe me um, because it, it seemed <laughs> they kind thought of, you'd do it for three days and give up. Yeah. But then again, they've they've always kind of. I mean, there's there's always been that element in my family which was growing up. Um, I didn't become a, a journalist till till quite late. I didn't go to university t- until I was twenty three, and there was always this kind of you know you you want to be kind of a writer, like you want to be a journalist, as if that's some kind of hobby, not really a proper, um, not really a proper job. So it was a bit again treated with the same sorts of scepticism that some of my other um, adventures had been treated with when I was younger. But you did stick out, as we as as we'll find out in a moment. But um, you are at pains to say in the book, and you say it a number of times. I think it's just worth making sure that kind of listeners are aware of this kind of humility, that you recognise that you are a tourist in this world. And being a tourist in this world, albeit a journalistic tourist, is very different from this being your life and having no choice. Yes, I'd say initially, I mean, it's different in terms of your your mental state from day to day because you know there is an escape hatch. You can pull the kind of string on the escape hatch whenever you want. And if things get so bad, you can then come back to your you know bourgeois life in, in London I mean, in in the beginning of the book, I talk about how the 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 life many people are living in the book that was, however, my life a decade ago. I mean, I didn't go to university as I said until I was twenty three. 
I worked as a in a I worked in you know warehouses, labouring jobs, petrol station, doing bar work, not kind of as a side job, but as a full time as a full time job. Um, came from kind of a, a broken home, um, and then moved in with my grandmother, sorted myself out, and then went back into the education system and and progressed from there. So it was a ca- also a case of for me going back to a world that I that I'd inhabited a decade before with without sounding too conceited, a, a, a degree of literary ability which I hadn't had when I was in those jobs myself. Um, so I couldn't have written about it in the past. I had to, you know, go through the education system, develop personally to then go back and articulate some of the, the experiences I'd, I'd had myself years before. I'm interested in the fact that you just used the phrase broken home, which is not a phrase I've heard for some time. And I'm going to remind you of that later, because I think one of the undercurrents of this book is a kind of nostalgia for a kind of lost working class world. So we'll come back to that. But let's go on the journey now. Um, you start in Rugeley. Now, you know, I, I'm just having a guess here that the average intelligence squared listener doesn't even know where Rugeley is. So, so tell us where it is. Tell us what kind of place it is before we talk about working in the warehouse. Similarly, I'd never heard of Rugeley when when I set out to, to write the book. It was it was I, I had to look up where it was, and it was near Cannock Chase, which I had. Heard I, that of. may not help intelligence squares. No, Staffordshire, Staffordshire, Staffordshire. They were, yeah, 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 it's good. Yeah, Staffordshire, so that, I recognise I mean, the pottery, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I'd been on a school trip to the potteries when I was younger, and then I kind of figured out where it was from that. And it was it was somewhere, you know, it was in the middle of the country. So the first place to go, I wanted to travel around. So I thought, start in the middle, and then see where it takes me from there. Um, so Rugeley is a town of twenty four thousand. It's around twenty four thousand people. It's a former collier town. So in uh, nineteen ninety one, the the coal mine closed. So that was previously the biggest employer. Had industry. Had had you know power stations nearby. Um, had companies like Armitage Shanks, Thorny MI. Uh, kind of skilled working class jobs really. Um, but I ended up there because Amazon was the biggest employer. Um, they they arrived in the town in 2011, and they're still the biggest employer today. And they were recruiting in early 2016 when I started to look for jobs, and I ended up in this in this relatively small town of Rugeley. So let, let's before we get into the warehouse, you, you're one of the one of the great things about the book is the way in which you vividly describe the places that you go to, and I think. You know, for people who live in the southeast and its affluence and the booming nature of the kind of commuter towns around it, this idea of a small town, 24,000 people set in the countryside, it sounds kind of quite nice. But actually, you want to you describe Rugeley as a place that's kind of lost in a way. You know, there's not much going on. Nobody really, I don't want to attack Rugeley. I don't want to be attacked on Twitter by Rugeley residents, but it doesn't sound like the kind of place that someone who's, who's ambitious would particularly want to stay in it's got one of these kind of identical high streets um it, it feels like a bit soulless the way you describe it yes i mean it did feel like that a bit it's i mean i'll get the caveat caveat in for initially that i met lots of really nice people there um it's one of those places though similarly to to i grew up in the southwest in in a small coastal town called burnham on sea it's it shares the fact that if you visit there for the day, and Blackpool, where I went later on in the book, that was especially true of there. If you go to some of these places for the day, for a day out as a kind of yeah, as a day tripper, um, it can seem like you know what a pleasant place. It's nice and quiet, but there's a kind of world within a world there. I mean, if if you live there, the biggest employer in town is is a company where entry level jobs, it's all temporary, all zero hours contract work. It's there's there's a kind of air of melancholy um, around that if that's what you've got to look forward to in terms of your employment prospects. There were, as you, as you mentioned, the kind of high street is 
like nothing you know like it's it's not exceptional it's like a lot of high streets now it's the kind of things you expect the costa coffee the pound stores the bookies um the pawnbrokers it's the the charity shops the the salons i mean there's nothing it's there's nothing wrong with that in the i, I wouldn't sneer at those kind of those kind of outlets but it's it's a tad soulless and it's it's a tad um depressing when you when you again without without putting rose tinted glasses on to look at the past when you look at some of the the, the the industries, the kind of skilled jobs that that existed in a town like Rugeley in the past. So uh, you get a job working in what is an Amazon warehouse, but of course not Amazon that employ you. So uh, explain to people how it is you get a job in this place and how, how the relationship works between you and the ultimate employer, which is Amazon. Well, for all the at Amazon, all the kind of uh, picker and packer jobs, which is the the unskilled jobs, they were all through one of two agencies. So it was Transline and another agency called PMP. Um, I got a job. Through, Transline were recruiting when I when I was looking for, started to look for work. I kind of filled out an online application form. Someone phoned me back a few days days later and invited me into the an induction the following week, which was a process of just filling out a pile of forms. There wasn't an interview process as such. Fill out a pile of forms. They give you a drug and alcohol test, which wasn't something I'd... Again, that was the first kind of diff, major difference between like a stereotypically middle-class job and working at Amazon. You have a drug and alcohol test before you start. Um, and then as long as your documents are in order, as long as you have you know your identification... Uh, you'll give you were given a job kind of a week later and we were told you know be under no illusions this is a temporary job um you know this one of the supervisors from transline said you know there's it actually said there's 70 eastern europeans waiting um waiting if you don't want and, a job and, and it's what's called a zero hours job not everybody understands what a zero hours job is so, so uh there are three categories in, in employment law basically in our country there's in, there's to be an employee where you get the full suite of rights and including uh right the right to challenge unfair dismissal redundancy pay and things like that uh then there's this category of workers now workers get some rights they get the minimum wage they do get holiday pay although often they don't know that they're entitled to uh, to holiday pay but the zero hours thing is critical because in the end, you have no right to expect work tomorrow. Uh, it's dependent entirely upon day-to-day -day, uh, contracts. Now, you, th there was steady work there. You didn't get. I don't think you got kind of laid off at any time when you were there. They needed you. There was a big demand. But I think you want to say that the thing about zero hours work is it creates the dynamic. The relationship you have to management is one that is highly subservient. Yes, yeah, so I, I I had regular hours in that I was working four days a week shifts, ten and a half hour shifts each time. It's essentially a full time full time job. But there was one instance where someone approached me in the warehouse, one of the Amazon supervisors, and said the where this was on a Thursday, I think, and said this Saturday the warehouse is going to be closed for maintenance. And they did they did this every sort. This would happen apparently every every few months. Um, so I said, you know, what's what is that? I'll be sixty seventy pounds down in my wage slip the following week how do i kind of make up for that and and they said well you you know you'll have to do a day of overtime you don't have to but if you if you can do a day of overtime you have to do that if you can't then you because they don't guarantee any hours at all no so i mean you were you could find yourself kind of about 70 pounds short in your wage packet with a with a few days notice essentially um which which could be could that's the you know that's the cost of my rent in rugely so that could set you into 
you could end up borrowing money and then getting into debt. Um, so there was that. There was that. I mean, though technically we had regular hours, they could drop that bombshell on you at any time. It was in, and also if you knew if you said boo to a goose, if you complained about anything, or you failed to meet the standards that were set for you, you know, you'd just be out on your ear. Yeah, I mean, this was one of the things I hadn't thought as much about before I went in to do the do the book. In that sometimes zero hours contracts were used in different industries to, to as a way of disciplining staff. So. If you blew the whistle, um, several care workers told told me later on. If you blew the whistle, um, if a company got a sniff of the word trade, un- the words trade union, um, you wouldn't, you couldn't get fired for that because then there'd be an employment tribunal, or you could, you'd have legal recourse to to do something about it. But they could drop your hours down and suddenly drop. You know, there's no work anymore. And there's not much work this week, and you can't do a lot about that. But it felt as if. Um, Many of the people I interviewed during the on the journey felt like their hours had been cut down at various companies because uh, they they'd complained or blew the whistle about something. So precariousness, economic insecurity, subservience—this is one aspect of of the job. But let, let's look at a couple of other things as well. Now, you know, I I'm a, uh, a kind of fitness freak, and I you know I ran seven kilometers this morning, seven o'clock in the morning, as I often do. Amazon, you kind of spend 10 miles walking around the warehouse, you know, getting getting fit, you know. I mean, obviously, it's not terribly well paid. But, you know, is it that bad a thing to have to, to do, to be on your feet, to be active uh, all day? No, I mean, it's not. Because, I mean, I used to be a postman for, for three years. And doing that, you're walking kind of 10, 12 miles every day. And then you are quite fit. because. But then you also have, you know, a canteen at work where you can eat something nutritious before you go out or not like a fry up not nutritious um you can stop on the way for toilet breaks you can you stop for water breaks you can stop to have something to eat and you're not going to receive a disciplinary about it back at the office the thing is when you're when i was working at, at amazon you're walking my average i I, t- I worked out my average the highest was 15 miles the lowest was about seven miles average about 10 miles um a day um if you're not looking after yourself properly your health deteriorates quite rapidly so I mean, there was a, a survey done of Amazon workers in the warehouse recently. Seventy-four percent of of workers were afraid to use the toilet because of productivity targets. When the I was, toilet was four floors away from where you had to work often. Yeah, so it's a. I should probably say the size of the warehouse. So Amazon would constantly boast that this warehouse is the size of ten football pitches. So it's. I don't know what that is in, in square square feet, but it's a huge warehouse. Um, there's four floors to it. I was working on the fourth floor, the very top floor, and the two toilets in the building that we had access to were on the bottom floor. And to get to reach them, you also had to go through airport-style security. So, you know, belts off, watches off, empty pockets, kind of rigmarole that takes kind of five minutes in itself. Um, so it can take you 10 minutes just to just to go down. You can be walking about around a quarter of a mile if you're the other side of the warehouse just to reach the toilet. Um, and you're up against the wall in terms of productivity targets. There's a constant kind of monitoring of your productivity targets. If you... Spend five minutes in the toilet where where your monitor that you have to carry around with you, you know, says that you're not actually doing any order picking. You then get admonished for clocking up idle time. So there's, you know, you 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 can't actually do do the basic thing. Everything's is everything's geared around productivity. So you can't actually stay healthy while you're doing doing that work. And in your breaks at lunchtime, for example, you 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 have 
technically you have half an hour, but it works out about 15 minutes once you've got you've through got security. Going, that. So, I mean, you can't so you, maintain you, your nutrition. You, you vividly describe a kind of a world of everyday indignities. And you talk about the effect this has on you because you're sitting in front of me. You look like a kind of reasonably healthy guy. I'm sure you're going to look after yourself. But you end up in this world of, of, of kind of eating ready meals, having McDonald's for breakfast. You start smoking again, drinking cheap lager to kind of keep... Going And you want to say that when people judge the poor by their own standards, they don't recognise the effect it has on you of working in this kind of environment and being subject to these everyday indignities. No, and it's not an original point. I mean, George Orwell made the point in The Road to Wigan Pier that after you've done um, particularly laborious and unpleasant work, you want something tasty. You want a kind of an emotional palliative in the same way that I might. I required sometimes sticking plasters on my feet after walking ten miles a day. It's you slip into a kind of unhealthy regime as well when you have the insecurity sometimes of, of the hour. So you don't quite know whether you're coming or going. Um, so and also on that kind of wage, you're living in pretty meagre accommodation as well. So it's not like you're coming home to a kind of roaring half and you know uh, sitting on the nice so kitchen nice kitchen and yeah. all that. You know, you're 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 living in a bed set and uh, shared facilities and so. You add the fact that your domestic circumstances are pretty ropey as well as your work circumstances. Yes, definitely. I mean, the place I lived in in Rugeley, it wasn't the best, it wasn't the worst. I'd heard, I heard stories from, from some of my flatmates about some of the places they, they'd stayed in before where you have kind of vermin roaming around the, the house and stuff. So, I mean, but you can't, you know, on that kind of wage, you, your, your dwellings are, are modest, uh, to put it, put it politely. Now, let's look at another angle of this, which is that uh, a key part of the story about Rugeley is that the, when the Amazon warehouse was set up, local people thought this is going to be a great thing. It'll be a great boon. It will bring us new jobs. There's a lot of excitement about it. There are incentives for Amazon to set up the warehouse. By the time you get there, the vast majority of workers are Eastern Europeans. The local community, not only do they feel disillusioned about the warehouse, but also they're very ambivalent about the Eastern Europeans who are working there. So unpackage this whole kind of story of, you, you know, you talk quite a lot about the attitude we have to migrants, which is that we kind of, on the one hand, we admire the fact they're willing to work their bollocks off for all, almost nothing. On the other hand, we kind of resent the fact they're somehow taking our, our jobs. Yeah, so I mean, the Amazon, yeah, arrived in 2011, there was. I looked back at some through some old newspaper archives, and there was, you know, there were the puff pieces from Amazon's PR people, but there were pieces from local journalists, you know, very very excited about the color. You know, the colliery had gone uh, closed twenty years before. The town hadn't really recovered like a lot of former industrial towns, and the promise of you know the biggest multinational in the world. Most people, are, I imagine, in the town, I imagine, had used Amazon at some point. There's kind of, if Amazon was coming to my town and I didn't know a great deal about the working conditions there, I'd be excited as well. Um, and but yet, five years later, when when I arrived, there was it was resentment, I suppose, directed towards the company, occasionally directed towards the migrant workers who worked there themselves. Um, the fact that they that it tended to be not even just Eastern Europeans or Central Europeans. It was it was the latest kind of incomers to the to the EU who who were willing to work there so the poorest the poorest european citizens romanians uh, typically when i was there who were the only ones willing to put up with the kind of conditions that you had to put, had to put up with there's an order picker there um and the attitude i mean the attitude of many of my liberal friends to that would be you know good luck to them they're willing to work hard um 
And, you know, they're willing to do jobs that, that lazy Brits... That's the kind of unspoken part. They're willing to do jobs that lazy Brits... Not always unspoken, actually. No, I mean, I mean, among my liberal friends, it, it is. Maybe. But among, <laughs> among, they, they think it, but don't say it. Yeah, but if I, if I said to, you know, my, my mum or, or my gran or something, they might say, you know, oh, good luck to them. They're willing to work hard. Britons are kind of lazy. Um, and I think, you know, without no disrespect to, to migrant workers, I think they are willing to work hard. But 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 the question is why. It's it's In the things I saw at Rugeley, it was simply because they were more desperate. So you had people, the Romanians I live with in, in the, the kind of flat I was staying in, uh, a guy called Chris, he he said to me, you know, I can I can live in Romania and, and make, you know, just under £100 a week and not really be able to support my family on that. Or I can come here and earn £270 and, you know, maybe treated like a like a slave. But um, that was what, what one of the Romanians said to me. And, and again, when I went back to Rugeley last week to speak to some people who work in the warehouse, we can be were treated like slaves they said here um but we can survive on the money and we can take a little bit back at the end of the, the our stay in in the uk and help our families now i'm willing to bet that there is somebody listening to us now who at the same time we all multitask is online buying something from amazon and and kind of my one criticism of your argument at this point in the book is i think you 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 argue i can't find the particular quote but you basically say People in Amazon are suffering these kind of conditions in order that the well-off can have whatever they want and have it now. But actually, you know, it, it isn't just the well-off. Uh, everybody wants low prices. And in fact, in many ways, it's poorer people who benefit most from a highly competitive market in which Amazon are driving down prices. So isn't it a little bit easy to kind of say this is the rich oppressing the poor? This Isn't, isn't this more the kind of competition between our instincts as consumers when we want the lowest prices and we want everything now and our instincts as producers when most of us would like people to have dignity at work yeah i mean there is a i wouldn't want to go down the road of lecturing working class people that they need to start spending more money uh, they need to start shopping ethically so they need to spend all their money um sourcing more expensive things but I think if you're a middle class person using something like that, you do have there is a bit more more responsibility because you're not going to be in the working in the Amazon warehouse. You're not going to be doing those sorts of jobs. You're not going to be the Uber, Uber taxi driver. So there is a bit more responsibility. It is easier on the part of someone such as myself um, to to shut my wall myself off from that world where of the warehouses of the you know, distribution centers of the of the Uber drivers, the delivery riders to completely wall myself off from that and just enjoy. The benefits of that of that cheap labour. Whereas, I think, I think it is different if you're someone who who works in in that part of the economy and then uses the money you earn in your low paid job to then you know use use the Amazon website to to also get There's cheap. A famous story. You derive some benefits. There was from a it, famous surely. story, wasn't there, of people living in tents because it was so far to get to the Amazon warehouse and the bus fare was so much. And then they found out where did they, how how had they bought the tents. <laughs> they bought them on Amazon. So there is this kind of there is a tension there. I mean, it's. It's, it's that people say also things, you know, you've used Amazon in the past, your book's for sale on Amazon. I mean, but but it's a bit like the argument, you know, we live in a capitalist country, therefore I have to wear shoes that are produced in a capitalist factory. You can't kind of escape the that kind of treadmill to some extent. Yeah, I get that. And I, I mean, look, the only comment I make is I've been, because I did a piece of work for Theresa May on the future of work. I've talked to a lot of people about future of work and about these kinds of issues and the difficult trade-offs. 
probably the person I've met who's demonstrated the least interest in these questions and has been most kind of complacent about the fact that you should just treat workers uh, however you want to and get whatever you want out of them was a very senior person at Amazon. So I do think this is a company that kind of glories actually, uh, in, in the way that it makes money. And, and uh, you know, we'll talk later about Uber. Whatever you think about Uber, they've taken real strides to try to make it look as though they're, they're doing the best by their workers. It doesn't seem to be Amazon in the slightest bit bothered. Let's move on from Amazon. You then go to Blackpool. Uh, when you say you then go to Blackpool, you might imagine a kind of coach trip and a night out. And, uh, but but, but you do. Stag do. Uh, but you really see the underbelly of, of, of Blackpool. And actually, the Blackpool section of the book is as much, I think, about Blackpool as it is about the job that you do. So we'll come on to your care, the, the care work you did in a moment. But tell people about the, the underside of Blackpool, because that's pretty grim. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, if you go to Blackpool for the day or something, you typically will see the, the promenade, the pleasure beach. Um, you'll be located around the seafront area. The, strangely, the, the town reminded me in a, in a strange way of of Havana, so somewhere in Cuba, so somewhere completely different. But if you walk along the seafront there, you ha- it's like a shell. So the seafront, you have all these nice properties that are done up on the seafront, but it's like a, an illusion. It's like a shell. It's for the tourists. You walk a, f- a couple of blocks inside and you see poverty that, that shocks you. Obviously, it's not as bad in, in, in Blackpool as, as in a developing country like Cuba. But again, you walk along the promenade, Seems like everyone's happy. You know, everyone's eating ninety nine flakes. The sun's out. Um, the it, it's done up quite nice. There's some kind of nice restaurants and bars there. You walk two blocks. Well, there's you one road. You talk about one road, Central Drive, which goes from which, which starts there, the promenade, yes, and right. then the further you go along it, the more deeply entrenched you see the kind of levels of deprivation and misery. Yes, I mean Central Drive. You only need to go though to one or two blocks in in from the from the promenade. And it's you're in, you're in a place where you've got kind of 25% of children living in poverty. I think it's something like 25% of 15-year-olds smoke cigarettes, which today that's a really shocking statistic. That's that's very, very high. Um, and this is long kind of road that stretches down to the Blackpool football ground. Um, and along this road, you have you know, there's lots of visible signs of poverty and deprivation. So high levels of homelessness. There are high levels of, of people unemployed, people waiting out. There are little kind of signs that you see in some of those deprived places, like people waiting, lots of people clustering outside pubs and bookies before they open, um, things like this, people looking for cigarette butts in the in the kind of cracks in the pavement. And, and you actually spent a bit of time, I think, uh, at least one night out with homeless people. And, and this, is, this is a kind of corrective to the view that homeless people are all basically getting money for drugs and alcohol. I mean, I think you spent time with somebody who had cancer and who had until what, a couple of years ago had his head above water economically, but things had just turned against him. Yes. Yeah, so I met someone called Gary who was sleeping rough in Blackpool. And his story was, I wanted to tell his story to include that in the book, because there are obviously people who are sleeping rough who have have drug and alcohol problems, have... Yeah, their li- their life has kind of spiraled out of control for whatever reason, but Gary was someone who I could relate to in that, like, might personally relate to, and I felt like readers would be able to relate to him more than perhaps someone who's who's lived this really really chaotic life. So someone who'd had a kind of stable, uh, quote unquote, respectable life, had been a painter and decorator, had been married, had a child, then had been had kind of uh, several strokes of bl- bad luck had kind of conspired against him, and he just hit rock bottom. So he he'd been diagnosed with with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, 
had taken it very badly, had had marriage problems as well, tried to tried to commit suicide, um, had survived the attempt, ended up in hospital for a long period of time. And then he when he came out of hospital, he hadn't put he hadn't applied for any of the benefits he would have been entitled to. So there was like a three week window where he had to sleep outside um, and just wait for, for his benefits to start coming through while also undergoing chemotherapy, going to the pharmacy several times a day to get cocodamol, paracetamol. And think how unpleasant it would be for someone to sleep outside on the streets of Blackpool anyway. And you're also doing this while taking on cancer that's ravaging your body. It's, it's, it, did, it didn't bear thinking about it. It made me, it made me think that even though I, I, I don't give money to beggars because I think you know, if you want to help homeless people, you should give money to homeless charities rather than to individuals. It did make me think a bit harder about the assumptions I make about why people are out on the streets and the circumstances that particularly led them to that. Now, when you were in Blackpool, you it was the care sector that, that you were exploring. I mean, it took a long time to get any care work, and, and I don't think you did it for that long. What I found kind of interesting, James, is that, is that in contrast to Amazon, you're more ambivalent about the care work. You know, I think there's a kind of recognition that that people are doing valuable stuff, that that it's a system that faces tough choices because of austerity, so there's not much money around. So this isn't a simple story. Amazon's a kind of simple story of nasty capitalists exploiting poor workers. This is a more complex picture, and your feelings about it are more ambivalent, I think. Yes, I mean, that, that's fair, I think. It was very much – there was a very much a structural problem – where there wasn't enough money in the sector, and the way the way the the whole process from central government allocating money for care all the way to to the tendering and commissioning process, it was it just resulted in what's accurately been described as clock watch care, where you're rushing in and out of these properties. People aren't really getting the proper care, um, the proper care that they 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 deserve, and. But while the staff are working really hard, some of the companies are doing doing what they can. There are there are bad companies like there are in any any industry, but it's the the structural problem was so vast, and there seemed to be little political will to tackle it. There was for a while, but then that was kicked into the long grass again. And while that's going on, we kind of people are, older people are often living a very undignified existence when they get into into very old age. But yeah, the care workers that you talk about. Remarkably, really, given that they are on minimum wage and uh, and you know they they again are subject to things which come up again and again. Your book, they don't get paid on time, they don't get paid properly, all this kind of stuff. Generally speaking, they are committed to their. Unlike the Romanians in the Wales, they are committed to what they're trying to do. Yes, so I didn't meet a care worker who who wasn't conscientious and saw it who saw it as a vocation. It was something they really cared about. The people they were looking after. Uh, for the for most of them went the extra mile, so they would work through their breaks. Um, if someone, if an older person needed shopping done, so I, mem- I remember visiting um, one elderly lady who who didn't have any any food in the house, just had a little bit of milk for tea. And we asked her if she had any shopping, and she was she said yes, yeah, I, I'm fine. So we looked in her fridge and cupboards, and it's like you haven't. So then we took our break to go and go and go shopping for her. And carers would do that, and it was it was. There was a there was a human. It kind of reaffirmed my faith in humanity, if that doesn't sound too grandiose, um, to some extent during that chapter, because people were faced with uh, within a system which seemed to be working against them. People still did their utmost to actually try and help people. Mm. So then we go 
uh, to South Wales, where, which is where, uh, interestingly, uh, the book takes a turn because, in a way, the, the South Wales section is less about work uh, for reasons we'll get into in a moment. It's more really about again what's happened to the places what's happened to south Wales. this is where your nostalgia really kicks in there's a lot about mining and the former mining communities and the pride of working class communities and all that's been lost and we'll turn to that but what's quite nice about the book is that you actually you don't even pretend that your next job is miserable really you work in a call center for admiral it's it sounds a bit like the off the david brent office there's you know lots of kind of enforced fun and jollity you know it it's it's pretty boring but but even though I, I get the sense that you want to kind of attack it but in the end about four or five times you have to say well actually it wasn't that it was boring but it really wasn't that bad and they did their very best no i mean in south wales it the books did take a, a bit of a turn i mean i'm i i can't hide some of my nostalgia for not for, for south wales generally my step granddad was from uh, cumbran in south wales from a from a mining family i grew up with kind of store all the kind of stories of Partly the poverty he grew up in in the, in the 1930s and, and 40s, but then also the kind of change after that, how things really did get better. Um, he, he'd met an Iron Bevan and kind of heard him heard him speak in his, his social club. And there was a sense that, that there was, it's kind of a fight. There was a fight in South Wales that had been, uh, when I visited, it felt some parts of South Wales where you had had that fight before, like an Iron Bevan's old former constituency. It felt very much like they were on their knees to some extent. And you looked at some of the statistics around things like prescriptions for antidepressants. I mean, one in six in in parts of in parts of South Wales, um, and it and it was a, a product in, to some to some extent of the loss of the old industries and the things they had been replaced by, which in South Wales very often was were, would be call centres. Some cases they weren't that bad. So Admiral were they treated us fairly well. Um, I, th- I didn't think free we- sweets, balloons, days out, all we- that kind of stuff we were still but that's the thing that stuff seemed to be instead of paying us a, a living wage they would give us sweets you know a celebrity appearance at the at the party free bar at the party at the end of the year which yeah, you, you know, like that's the, not you like the be, free bar that's not to be sniffed at um but but at the same time they they did there was a, a sense that you could progress within the company which i think is really important because at, at companies like amazon there's we often talk about social mobility but there's no there's very little social mobility within a within a firm whereas it did feel like an admiral as much as we weren't paid enough, I didn't think, as much as there was this enforced sense of like wackiness, and as much as many of the people working there were university graduates with lots of debt and they, they probably hoped to be doing something else, there was a sense that if you worked there f- and stuck at it, you could progress and, and you'd, you'd go up the pay, pay scale and you'd, have a, you'd get a job there with, with a bit more responsibility. And this kind of nostalgia thing, you know, it, it's partly a nostalgia for a different type of economy, a different type of government, a different set of social norms. But it's it also seems to be a nostalgia for pe- about people themselves and what matters to them. Because two of the things you say about Amro is, first of all, the, the people there hate politics. They hate politicians. When you talk to them, they're pretty trite about their kind of views uh, of the world. They're kind of mainly happy to blame the European Union or or immigrants for any kind of woes they have. And they assume all politicians are venal and appalling. And then the second thing you say is that the worst thing about uh, Amaral, in a way, is having to deal with the public on the other end of the phone. I think there's a line where you say anyone who deals with the public all day pretty soon becomes, you know, uh, quite kind of misanthropic. So... <laughs> Uh, and then you talk to these old miners and they, they, they send a completely different quality of person, more generous, more rounded, more authentic. Do you think we, we human beings, have become somehow worse in the last couple of generations? 
I mean, I think it's the nostal- The point about nostalgia is I f- feel like I'm not nostalgic for the work because I, I did when I was there, went go down the, the one of the pits there, the, the big pit museum and hung around with people who met people who'd had pretty bad injuries, um, who'd, whose lungs were filled with coal dust. Um, so I'm, I'm not nostalgic for the work. I mean, you could you could work. You're not going to die in a call center, almost certainly. Whereas that could happen. That ha- did happen quite regularly mm-hmm. underground. I suppose what I'm nostalgic for, to some extent, are the are the kind of institutional affiliations which sprang up through some of the industrial jobs. So the trade unions would be the obvious example, but also things like workers' education organisations, social working men's working men's clubs would would be another one. And there's kind of there was very much a fatalism amongst among people both in in the workplace at Admiral where I worked and amongst people in South Wales there was very much a fatalism and apathy towards politics so politics was something that was done to you um it wasn't something that that you did and i think it's i think when times are good it's easy to kind of ignore that and you know well everyone's happy that's why they're not interested in politics people aren't voting in these places because you know they're fine they do their job you you have enough money to then buy your stuff off Amazon, life's relatively okay. But I think it's when when you lose those kind of uh, aisles of working class democracy, as it were, where you can't, where you do actually feel like you're acting on the world, the, the forms of local democracy that you used to have in those working class towns where even if you are materially poor, you you do feel like you have um, some say, you, you're, 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 in, you're enforcing your will on the world a little bit. And if you don't have any of those aisles of, democ- of working class democracy, it becomes very easy then for a kind of dem- demagogic politics where someone can come in and promise to, to change everything with a kind of sweep of their arm uh, and brush all the bad stuff away or take back control, uh, which was very much the, the kind of slogan of the EU, anti-EU campaign, which, was, which did very well in South Wales shortly, after, shortly before I arrived there. So in a sense, I think what you're describing in different ways throughout the book is the kind of process of what might be called structural atomization. You know, now sometimes it's deliberate atomization. It's a deliberate strategy of dividing and ruling. But actually there's there's a there's something structural going on here which is leading to people feeling in all sorts of ways that they are on their own, competing against other people who are also down at the bottom with them, you know, being encouraged to be self-employed or whatever it might. It's it's this broader atomization of society that seems to me to be the kind of motif actually that's the word that runs through your book. Yes, and there's a there's a, a lack of a kind of binding worldview, if you like, to to explain that those processes those processes that you feel like are acting upon you. So, I mean, there's this idea of of kind of invisible power where you're in you're in this place where industries disappeared. There are all these powers kind of turning your high street into this identikit place where there's you know Ebervale, three pawnbrokers within kind of a hundred yards. There are these kind of vast global processes working upon uh, your life, but there's no. I mean, when when we had a strong kind of socialist, social democratic movement, there was a narrative. Whether it was you know the things it got, it got some things wrong, of course, but there was an, a narrative which could help you to explain uh, why these things were happening. And there were also bodies that you could then join at a grassroots level where you felt like you were uh, doing something perhaps to try to change that. Whether that was forming a union in your workplace, whether that was setting up some you know, a working men's club to rival the gentlemen's clubs that they had uh, down in London. But with the atomization of, with with this kind of atomization that you, that you explain very well, it's, it again, there, there aren't those kind of, there isn't that explanation of why things are happening anymore. So you get this kind of information 
you get this kind of sense of confusion, which I think then leads on to all kinds of stuff like the conspiracy, rise of conspiracy theories, the, the, lays the ground for this kind of uh, demagogic figure like Trump in the US to come in and then with their you know certainty of this is why all of this is happening. I want to finish by coming back to that and talking about that in the context of where we are politically at the moment. But before we do that, I can't resist identifying the one enormous, huge, glaring flaw with your book, which is you don't refer to my review once. You know, I keep, you know, I'm reading this and you're talking at the final chapter, which we haven't got time to go into. You talk about Uber and Deliveroo and you, you say what people always say about Uber and Deliveroo, which is in many ways the people who work through these kind of platforms quite like it, quite like the flexibility on a good day. They can earn quite a lot of money. But in the end, there's a lot of control with the platform. There's a danger of oversupply. I mean, I'd re- you know, it's worth reading, but you didn't say anything I didn't know about those, 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 those sectors. Um, let me run through three or four of the recommendations in my review, things that the government's consulting about now. So I guess what I'm trying to do is work up Intelligence Square listeners to write to their MP and say you should act on the Taylor review. So three or four of the things I proposed – do you think they would make a difference? One, that every worker should get on day one a simple statement of their terms and their conditions and how much take-home pay they'll get and what their entitlements are, including holiday pay. Would that make a difference? Yes, certainly. I mean, it was hard even when I was on a regular contract sometimes to actually get the piece of paper with what what my terms and conditions were. It's remarkable that doesn't happen now, isn't it, really? I mean, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not rocket science to tell people what their basic terms and conditions and entitlements are. And we know, for example, that a lot of agency workers don't know they're entitled to holiday pay. So, you know, you do six months work, you're actually, you know, you've got an entitlement there, um, which, which you can, if you want to, you can choose to take that as, as, as money, but they don't know they've got that. So that would be a good thing. Okay. Second idea was that we should pay a slightly higher minimum wage for people if their hours aren't guaranteed. So I'd argue if you're not told at least two weeks in advance of the hours that are required, so the company wants to have flexibility to give you hours or not give you hours, then you should be paid higher slightly higher minimum wage for those non-guaranteed hours. So that in a sense, you're putting a bit of a cost on the employer for the flexibility they want. I think that's a good idea. I also think, though, that I think guaranteed hours after the right to demand guaranteed hours after a certain period of tenure, I think, is important because one thing that, that did really worry me, particularly in the care sector, was, again, the way in which, I mean, I saw several instances of, of medicine sheets not being filled out correctly so someone else could come in give the person medicine again and they're effectively poisoned um people whistle blew about things like that and there was a fear that with the use of zero hour contracts our hours could be cut right down i think after a period of time you should be able to demand a, a regular so regular i went contract. halfway towards that i recommended a, a right to request a permanent contract and fixed hours and also the companies would have to publish how many requests they'd had and how many they'd exceeded to so i was going to go more for a nudge than a than, than a shove but then on that issue, if I had to choose one recommendation above all the others in my report, which I, I want the government to implement, and the kind of one that I'm going to get, I'll go out on the kind of barricades and wave a flag if they don't do it, actually, it, it, which isn't really my style, is that we should massively lower the threshold for people to have representation at work and rights to information and consultation. So at the moment, 10% of employees, the same as trade union recognition, which as you say in the book is a very hard thing to do, particularly if you're worried about being victimised, I'd say that should come right down to 2%. So really, it's almost a notional figure for the number of people who have to say, we would like an independent representative, someone we can go to, can raise concerns on our behalf, and we'd like a right to information about what's going on in the company and to consultation over things that are going to affect our terms and conditions that that would have made a difference, wouldn't it? In some of the places you worked, yes. I mean, I, I wholeheartedly would agree with you on that. I think, especially when many of the places, so many of the staff are migrant workers who are 
perhaps in the country for a temporary period, maybe two, three, four months, it can be harder to persuade them to, to, to join a trade union. It can be hard to persuade people anyway to join a trade union in, in some of those workplaces when you fear that you'll be disciplined for it. And if you're in a strange country, that fear can be can be heightened again. So I think that would be important. I also think, um, so at the moment, you have a situation where the GMB, for example, are going to... The trade union. Yeah, the GMB trade union will be, you know, they'll go to an Amazon warehouse and they'll be, even if they're right on the far edge of the car park, you have security chasing them out when they're, they're handing out union forms. I would, I think your idea is really good. I would also kind of mandate so that that in a job like that you get half an hour with a with a union rep when you start the job just like we used to have at royal mail who comes in after um you know during the induction has half an hour just to tell you what your what your rights at work are Mm, interesting well i i suggested a relatively modest set of steps because i thought well a because i wanted to have them i wanted to see them implemented by conservative government but also i thought if we could start to turn the tide on this idea that quality of work doesn't really matter um, and that it doesn't matter what happens to people at the bottom end, then, then that might open up future possibilities. I want to end, James, because you know this is a great book and I, I recommend everyone you know to read it because if you do read it, it, it won't necessarily lead you to any kind of particular policy conclusions or to change your politics. It will make you think a bit harder the next time you jump in the Uber, the next time you order on Amazon, the next time um, you, you see a care worker scurrying to and, to and fro. But you've written uh, about politics for many years, and I've admired your writing. Um, so two last questions, Rhi. What did this journey do for you in terms of your own core politics? Did it make you more Corbynite? Did it make you more angry? Did it make you slightly more radical than you were at the beginning of the process? It didn't make me more or less uh, Corbynite, really. I mean, it, it it gave me a better understanding, I think, on the one hand of why there's more dissatisfaction with with the you know quoting establishment with with kind of Westminster. Why there's more, you know, you I feel quite anti-capitalist at certain points in this book. Yeah, I mean, anti. I I would prefer to phrase it anti a certain kind of model of capitalism. I mean, I don't believe in the the complete abolition of markets, um, but I think some of the things that just the indignity that that we accept people at the bottom of la- the labor market to be treated a certain way and it's i i didn't want to turn it into a policy document i wanted wanted it to be very much a moral argument so that i could change people's minds who aren't you know who might not be already in the labor party i don't just want to to persuade those people who just the moral argument i suppose would be that you know someone who doesn't necessarily have academic qualifications someone who does um, end up working in, in a warehouse you know they're just as much of a human being as, as me or you it isn't different for them it's it's you still feel the, the those indignities just as kind of sharply as as any any kind of middle class person and I suppose it it, it made me more radical in terms of economic e- economic reform I suppose in terms of the the this is going on I, I felt very much like I came away from it I wanted to kind of rub my middle class contemporaries rub their faces in what's going on um, which helps to prop up kind of the lifestyle that that they lead. But more more than anything else, this book is a plea for us to take seriously the dignity of labour. But in a sense, actually, looking at the kind of themes and the the, the the talking about place and talking about culture, in a way, it's less really about we need a, a different government. It's more about the kind of warp and weft of day to day life. This sense of atomization, this loss of collective shared culture and working class pride. Is there anything that can be done about that? Is there anything that you see that excites you with the possibility that we could create a kind of 21st century version of that kind of solidarity and collective agency? 
I mean, that's that's that would probably require another book to um, to come up with with the kind of solutions to that. But but that's right in terms of it's not just the material poverty. I don't think that comes from the book. There's a kind of I don't like the word particularly, but there's a kind of spiritual poverty as well. There's a kind of because um, those working class movements they weren't just about changing policy they were also about self-improvement weren't they yes and also identity so having an empowering identity so i think it's i i wouldn't know what the there are there are a ton of potential policy proposals to kind of reinvigorate the trade unions reinvigorate kind of localism in working class localism and local democracy if you like but it's I, I suppose I'd want people to start thinking about that, it, that, again, it isn't just the material poverty and that identity is important and having an empowering identity is very important. So as this is something that, that's typically talked about a lot uh, with regard to identity politics, but with kind of, the, the, there's a loss of like dignity and identity that's gone out of many working class jobs. So, I mean, there's a guy called Alex who was a former collier who said to me, uh, something that really stuck with me, he said, I... I see people around the town and I say, the town of Rugeley this is, and I say, where do you work? And they'd say, I'm only at Amazon. And he's, he kind of laughed and said, I'd never say I'm only a collier because that's what you did and you were proud of it. And I think that's so important, having something that gives you gives you identity. Um, if I could no longer write anymore for a living, it would it would be a real strike a real blow to my identity and self-esteem. It's the same for, for working class people, I think. And it's it does... You know, we, we ought to remember that. It's, it's very easy to forget it. So James Bloodworth's Hired, Six Months Undercover in Low Wage Britain, uh, is available uh, in good bookshops and on websites, but don't buy it off Amazon because if you do, you'll feel a bit guilty when uh, you read it. James, thank you for writing the book and thank you for spending this time with us. Thank you. And a final reminder that you can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. I've been Matthew Taylor. Thanks for listening.